0: Our researchers have a lot of interpersonal relationship with various researchers across the field.
1: That's Richard Hummel. He's manager of the ACERT threat intelligence team at Arbor Networks, the security division of Netscout. The research we're discussing today is titled, LoJack Becomes a Double Agent.
0: This particular one came as a tip to one of those researchers. Initially, when we received it, it was, hey, here's a malicious binary. There's something, you know, off about it. We didn't really have a whole lot to go on. Um, So that's kind of what kicked off our research into this particular finding. Describe to me uh,
1: what's going on with LoJack. I mean, I remember uh, years ago, I think LoJack started out as a brand that uh, would protect your cars from being stolen. And then somewhere over the years, uh, that brand pivoted and and became known for protecting computers.
0: Kind of what led us to the whole LoJack research, if you will, back in 2014 was a Black Hat presentation um, that some researchers did on what was then known as CompuTrace. Uh, Since then, it's been purchased and it's been rebranded to be LoJack, which essentially installs an agent on your system at the firmware level that allows you to track your laptop should it ever be stolen. Uh, So that's kind of where the software is that we're dealing with. Uh, The actual software itself, to our knowledge, has not been modified as far as functionality. The code remains the same. If you compare a legitimate LoJack sample with uh, one of the ones using a Hijack C2, They're identical, 100% function matching across the board. Hmm. Um, So the the problem isn't stemming from Absolute or LoJack software itself. Uh, Essentially, the attackers are taking that copy of the software and simply replacing the C2 in it with one of their own. I see.
1: Well, take us through how LoJack works. How does it maintain its persistence on a machine?
0: Uh, Sure. So there's an agent. uh, The researchers back in 2014 uh, dubbed this small agent. But basically what it does is the agent itself embeds itself in a BIOS or UEFI firmware. And from there, whenever the system is rebooted, it embeds code into something called autocheck.exe. Um, and that basically is what's going to mean its persistence on the machine itself. So anytime you were to swap a drive out, if you rebooted the system, or even if you reformatted, it's going to persist because it's actually at the firmware level rather than a software level. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's a unique... A method of maintaining persistence. And it, it's great for LoJack itself, right? Because if somebody grabs your computer and steals it, um, and they swap out a drive so they can actually use it, you're still able to then locate your laptop. Uh, so it's a really, it's a cool persistence mechanism. And it's really unfortunate that attackers have used that and kind of leveraged that for their own purposes.
1: And so the legitimate functionality of, uh, of, the, of a LoJack install, what sorts of uh, things does it allow you to do?
0: So that's that's one of the things that makes it appealing to an attacker, right? Is LoJack itself allows you to execute arbitrary code. Uh, it comes with it natively. Uh, and because it's running at the firmware level, it also has system permissions. So essentially, it provides a backdoor into an effective machine, one running a LoJack sample that has this malicious C2. Uh, and an attacker can use that access to essentially do what they want. If they have additional malware or payloads that they want to distribute, Uh, It's as trivial as sending that command via their C2 back to the agent installed, Uh, and then they can then install additional malware, whatever that may be. Describe to us what exactly
1: have the bad guys modified here to to have it look at their own command and control
0: servers. There is a uh, configuration within LoJack itself that has the C2 pointing to legitimate LoJack command and control servers, right? This is pretty typical. If you need to find your laptop, you have to have a way to communicate it with it, Right. So it has to have some sort of callback to LoJack itself so that they can then locate your machine. Mm. The attackers have basically swapped out that C2 check-in with one of their own. And it's it's fairly trivial. It's only encrypted with a single byte XOR key um, that is actually hard-coded into the binary itself. Uh, and the attackers, when they replace the C2, they also will pad any extra bytes with that XOR key. So it's relatively simple for us to go in and strip out those C2. But that's literally the only change that they've made uh, to our knowledge of the software itself.
1: So to the person who has this running, it looks like a perfectly normally functioning copy of LoJack doing all the things it's supposed to be doing.
0: Correct. And from what we've seen, uh, we have one live C2 um, that was live as of yesterday. When it checks into that malicious C2, it actually responds as if it is a LoJack server. So the communication protocol looks very similar.
1: In terms of attribution, uh, who, are we, uh, who, who do we think is up
0: to this? I think we have a moderate confidence on it right now because mm-hmm. all of the attribution that we have stems from infrastructure. There's, there's no code to go on. There's no like tick marks or anything like that where we can say definitively that this has been seen in other malware samples from X group, right? Um, so what we're looking at is the actual C2s themselves. Um, and some research over the past several months and past year point some of those C2 to Fancy Bear or APT28. Um, I think they're also known as Pondstorm. Several of those C2s were actually seen in some phishing campaigns um, that Jigsaw Security had reported on uh, in the past. Um, So that leads us to believe that the operation might be related to APT28 or Fancy Bear.
1: The way that they're going at this makes it um, pretty effective at avoiding antivirus detection.
0: Correct. Yeah, when we first started looking at this, uh, a lot of the different AV scanners had maybe two of fifty-plus identifications for it, and of those, they listed it as a risk tool or something that, hey, this could potentially cause harm to your system, but it wasn't listed as outright malicious or malware itself, um, which is pretty common, right? I mean, you're installing software that's just planting something in your firmware, uh, so sure, sure, it should be risky, uh, but it didn't label it as malware, and that's because to the antivirus scanner it looked legitimate right it looked just like a lojack sample Um, and the c2s themselves can be swapped out in any given sample so it's kind of hard to stay ahead of that game and say oh let's go ahead and blacklist all the c2 because we don't know them until we've analyzed the sample Um, so yeah so it's very effective at evading antivirus because they're basically using legitimate software that just checks in somewhere else
1: Now, do you have any sense for how people are
0: getting this altered version of LoJack on their machines? We don't. We've speculated. We have some theories. Um, But we were just looking at APT28 itself. What are their TTPs and tactics? Um, And in the past, they've used a lot of phishing to distribute their payloads. Mm. Um, So we looked at some of the more recent stuff uh, that Jigsaw Security reported on. Um, They have several documents there with macro droppers. And we ran some of those and we looked to see, do any of those drop low jack? And we haven't been able to confirm that. Um, So right now we don't know how they're getting on systems or even if they are. Um, It could be that we found these samples or we were tipped off to these samples and the attackers are in testing mode. So we don't have any confirmation of these actually impacting users in the wild. Um, And we have been working with Absolute. Um, And so they're, they're very aware of this. And so as things develop, we'll continue to work with them and share our findings back and forth.
1: So in terms of folks protecting themselves against this, what are your recommendations?
0: So obviously the IOCs that we list here in the report are very good. Uh, make sure that your systems are blocking those domains. If you have the hashes that we've shared, uh, clearly those are going to be representative of these malicious samples. Um, now, it's not going to identify all of them for sure. It's just going to identify the five that we have listed in the blog. Um, but honestly, that, uh, to our knowledge right now, that's the best way that you can block this, is by making sure those domains are blacklisted um and that your systems cannot communicate with those. Um, we do push all of this stuff to our systems. Um, so we are detecting if and when we see any of this logic activity, we can get alerted on those, uh, and then it can enable our research to go further and look at those and strip out those CTUs, and then again, feed those back into our process. But that seems to be the best way at this point to block the activity.
1: What's your take on on the, how this contributes to, I suppose, a certain level of uncertainty? You know, it's uh... I suppose a, a Who Watches the watchman kind of thing. You know, we, we install these systems uh, on our computers to help protect us, but along with that comes a certain level of trust that the information they're going to be sending back to their own servers is is going to be uh, well-protected, encrypted, and, and so on.
0: Uh, absolutely. And uh, as far as we know, there's there's nothing wrong with that process itself. From what we can tell... Uh, And and obviously, we're not sitting at the host environment. So we don't know if an attacker is getting in directly and tampering with LoJack samples that are already installed on systems. We don't know that. Um, All we've been able to glean is these samples in the wild um, that have been tampered with. So that communication protocol between a host with installed LoJack and actual LoJack servers, as far as we know, that's not been compromised. And I, I guess I'm probably not the best person to speak to that. That'd be something that Absolute and their security engineers would be best uh, postured to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as we can tell, the problem stems from an attacker getting a hold of a sample and cracking it, if you will, Um, similar to what a lot of these different gamers do. They they grab a a copy of a game, they crack it, and they fix it so that the key can run without validation or purchase. That's kind of what we see here, right? They're taking a legitimate sample. They're reverse engineering it to the point where they can swap out that C2 and then redeploying that. It really doesn't have anything to do with Absolute and LoJack vendor itself. It's it's more along the lines of the attacker taking advantage of something that's already in existence.
1: So I suppose it's uh, fair to say that we can expect uh, some updates coming from the LoJack folks themselves to, to probably take care of this.
0: I do know that uh, last response that we had from them, that they were looking at internally investigating. Um, as far as I know, their posture is that none of their clients have been impacted. Um, So, again, I can't speak to their internal processes. That would be something we'd want to reach out to them for comment. Um, But, yes, anytime we find any updates or if we find additional samples or additional C2s, um, we're keeping an open dialogue. Um, We want to make sure that we're, we're transparent with them and that we're sharing any of our findings that's going to help them and any of their clients.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering just just from a, a larger point of view. You know, we we started out today talking about how this came to you all from from a tip. I wonder if you could describe to me the, the sense of community there is among the researchers, those of you who are looking into these sorts of things, or uh, how many of these conversations happen, in, you know, in back channels and in, in uh, Slack groups or things like that. Uh, you, you all do keep in touch with with each other, yes.
0: Yes. Uh, just from my perspective and being around in the field now for the past 10 years, it's, it's, there's a lot of people in the field, but it's a very small community, if that mm. makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so yes, a lot of us sit in, in trusted groups. Uh, we sit in chat rooms. We have mailing lists. Uh, there's a number of ways that we keep in touch, um, but we do. We share a lot of information back and forth, and often uh, we share those free of charge uh, because we want to help the entire community. Obviously, there's some things that you have to have close hold, right? You have to run a business, for instance. But when we can, we try to share as often as we can. Um, And with the NETSCOUT Arbor side of the house, we don't monetize our our intel like this, right? So when we can, we try to blog them out publicly and then get those in front of as many people as we can to help protect them from the particular threats. Um, And anytime we come across threats like this, we're automatically feeding all those into our systems so that clients, you know, running any of our appliances are going to be protected. That's like our first line of business. Um, And then from there, we look at how can we share this back into the community? How can we bring awareness to this and help other people be protected as well?
1: In your experience, uh, what would your advice be? I'm thinking about the person who's coming up through school or maybe considering a career change, and they think that this sort of research may be something that they're interested in. What are the the attributes that you see the successful people who are doing this kind of work have?
0: Honestly, for me, it boils down to passion uh, and self-starting. I didn't receive any formal training when I got into this. It was more of a self-driven thing. Now, granted, I was in the Army for a while, so I did some intel. Um, but when it comes to reverse engineering, when it comes to the security aspect um, and looking at threats from a, a reverse engineering or technical standpoint, um, for me, that was self-taught, self-driven. Hmm. Um, and I just had a passion about the field. I thought it was super interesting finding out what the attackers do, how the attacker thinks, um, what they're going to do with a particular binary and trying to figure that out. To me, it was self-satisfaction. right? And I know a lot of other people in the field, a lot of the successful people have that same passion. A drive to figure out what's going on and then feed that back into the community to make sure people are protected. So I think that's that's a, a key aspect that I look for in other security researchers, uh, not only from my team, but those that I work with as well.
1: And from a hiring point of view, what what sort of work would you like to see? Is it I'm thinking, you know, is this a situation mm-hmm. where uh, if someone has done that work on their own, if they're a, a self starter, they might not necessarily need all of the certifications and and the traditional education from your
0: point of view? Uh, sure. And honestly, that's um, certifications may play a role in a particular position, um, but it's not the end-all, be-all, right? A lot of times with when I'm looking at a, a particular resume or somebody for hire, uh, I don't necessarily hold certificates in high regard. Uh, instead, I look at who they are as a person, what they've done for the community. Do they have their own personal blog? What are they giving back? Are they in any of the trust groups? Do they contribute? Um, But then also I want to evaluate their technical skills, right? So if they've done this on their own and they have some blogs that to me lends credence to the fact that yes They know how to do this. They know how to do it well and effectively Um, There's also some internal things you could do to test that out such as giving um, them a particular sample of malware and saying hey Reverse this send me back a report um, and then evaluate how they did so there's a lot of things you can do there But I like uh, from my standpoint is to evaluate what they've done for the community and what they've given back
1: Our thanks to Richard Hummel from Arbor Network's ACERT team for joining us. The research is titled, LoJack Becomes a Double Agent, and you can check it out on their website. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E